Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? We're back. Welcome to EU Confidential and welcome to 2024. Let's hope it brings us all a lot of personal joy and peace. That said, this year will be a big one for political combat, with politicians fighting for the hearts and minds of voters around the globe. Over 2 billion people in 50 countries are eligible to vote this year. That's like one in four humans on the planet. People will head to the polls in the U.S., Mexico, India, Indonesia, Taiwan, Ukraine, the U.K., to name but a few. Here at Politico Europe, we're gearing up to track the EU's 400 million voters who could remake Brussels when they have their say in early June. 2024 will be a decisive year. Your vote matters. It will set the direction of our course and decide on the Europe you want to see. In the past years, I can tell you that parties around the EU27 are already formulating their talking points and raising the cash they'll need to spread the word. In Brussels, lobbyists and diplomats are placing bets on future commissioners. And MEPs are shifting from legislating to pontificating as they ask voters to pay attention and re-elect them. It's all part of a familiar rhythm of election cycles. But the chaos of the past decade has taught us to brace for political tremors, possibly earthquakes, that could upend national politics and jumble the global order. Just imagine, for example, what could happen if my native U.S. decides to send Donald Trump back to the White House. Or heck, he might just decide he's going to return anyway, regardless of the result. To every American who is petrified that Joe Biden's catastrophic weakness will bring our country to ruin, I make you this promise as your president and nobody else can say it. I am the only one that will prevent World War III because we are very close to World War III. So listen, guys, I've always been a huge nerd. If you're anything like me, you followed political strategy the way normal people follow football. Elections are the greatest game when everyone's playing by the same rules. But in this era of extreme polarization, AI-generated deepfakes, and quote-unquote illiberal democracy, could we be looking at game over? I'm Sarah Wheaton, Politico's chief policy correspondent and host of EU Confidential. And my New Year's resolution, apart from making this the year when I actually make my deadlines, I promise, editors, is to bring you, along with our team, Christina and Dianis, the most exciting guests and the best conversations over the coming weeks and months to help you make sense of 2024. So today we're going to try to predict the future. First, I'll be joined by my colleagues Barbara Moons here in Brussels, Clea Calcutt in Paris, and Hans van der Borchardt in Berlin to talk about the EU elections and the Belgian presidency of the Council of the EU, which just kicked off on New Year's Day. We will also get views from the German and French capitals about the big events of this year, including the Olympic Games in Paris, set to begin this summer. 
Finally, we'll be joined by Jan Chinsky, senior policy editor and our expert on defense. For all the people who may be wishing for a bit of peace and stability as wars in Ukraine and Israel-Palestine keep raging into 2024, we'll get his read on whether that's a realistic possibility. All right, let's start off with our panel. Barbara, Clea, Hans, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Frohes Neues, as you say in Germany. And Hans, where are you physically right now? Are you in Germany or are you somewhere sunny? I'm no, I wish I was somewhere sunny. No, I'm in unfortunately I'm in Berlin where it's rather rainy and cold. That's how it is in Brussels. Clea, where are you? I'm in, in Grey Paris, not in Gay Paris, but Grey Paris at the moment. Yeah. All right, too bad. I even brought the Brussels Grey to Florida when I went there for my vacation. So it's just an affliction that we're all dealing with perpetually around here. Thanks to all of you for being here uh, in person as Barbara is here with me or joining us from your gray locations. So 2024 is the big year for elections. Barbara, in your latest playbook, I think you called it a bonanza of elections. The European Parliament elections will take place between the 6th and the 9th of June. They'll be electing 720 MEPs. So are we any wiser now about the possible outcomes uh, than we were when we first learned about the date? Cleo, what's the thinking in Paris about what might happen? Well, I think there's a lot of nervousness at the moment in Paris because the national rally, the far right, is way ahead of Macron's Renaissance party. They're almost 10 points ahead and uh, they haven't yet nominated a lead candidate to run the campaign in France, which is down to, you know, Macron obviously procrastinating a lot, the difficulty in finding a candidate who's well known. But obviously, as time passes, anybody who's going to step into that position is going to have a shorter and shorter campaign. Obviously, all the eyes are on Stéphane Sejourné, but Stéphane Sejourné has a lot of hats already. He's, you know, the president of the Renew Group in the European Parliament. He also runs the Renaissance Party in Paris. And he's not a well-known figure. You know, he's not on television often. And there's sort of difficulty in seeing how he will be able to jumpstart the campaign here. And if not, who else it will be? How did Sejourné sort of, you know, this relatively unknown figure, how did he end up, you know, wearing all of these hats? Well, Sejourné, I mean, it's funny because there's kind of several types of animals in politics, but he's definitely, you know, in the background, great at strategy, great at thinking about campaigns. I believe he was campaign officer for Macron way back. So he's very good at working the machinery and getting deals with different groups from different countries inside the Renew group. And also that there's a thing with, you know, Macron is that he does have certain loyal people he likes to rely on and uh, Sejourné is one of those people. And I think that's also why he's been put at the head of the party. The party is key. So whoever gets the party has a great chance of running as a, as a top candidate in the next presidential election in France. And you said Macron is procrastinating. Um, so that's maybe a potential New Year's resolution for him. Hans, in Berlin, you know, what do you think the uh, New Year's resolution for political leaders ahead of the elections ought to be? Well, I think for most parties, it's clearly to stop the rise of the far right. We have the alternative for Deutschland, uh, the AFD, now polling at 22 percent in uh, in general national polls, but even reaching above 30 percent uh, in one case in uh, Saxony, even 37 percent. And there are three states in Eastern Germany, so Saxony, um, Thuringia and Brandenburg, 
which are also going to the polls. So we first have the European elections in June, as you mentioned, but then these three also important state elections in Germany. And in all four of these elections, the far right is currently forecasted to perform very well. So this is definitely something that is a big concern for most political leaders in Germany. And I think that kind of captures the mood, right, ahead of these European elections that you have this happening in the two, you know, biggest countries, the two capitals are mostly watched, but also in the projections for the European Parliament as such. At this point, the far right idea is projected to become the third biggest group in the European Parliament. And so I think that is definitely going into the new year, the, the big concern among the European bubble that how can they stop this rise of the far right? And what would it mean for a potential next European Commission if this actually happens? What would it mean, Barbara? Please predict the answer to your own question. Um, I think that a lot of the policies that we're talking about now, you know, the Green Deal also maybe flipping a little bit more away from the Green Deal, talking more about competitiveness, as now the Belgian presidency of the Council of the EU wants to do. All of these things just become much harder if you then have a, a much bigger grouping of the far right in the European Parliament and then maybe even potential ID leaders in the European Council. So much more focus, obviously, on migration and other topics that are of concern to the far right. Mm -hmm. And... You know, you just talked about the impact that that would take place in Brussels if there was this rise of the far right. But we always say the European elections are 27 different votes. Mm -hmm. So from where each of you are sitting, and we should note that in Belgium as well, there will be national elections at the same time as the European elections. So are you seeing any signs that these bigger European issues are actually having an impact on the campaigns at this point? Or do you really think it will still just be individual national issues? I think at this point, there is no European campaign yet. I think most voters aren't even aware that the European elections will happen. We are obviously very aware. So are the politicians. But so that's one of the challenges, right, to actually get the people to the polls for these European elections, and then to center the debate, not just about national issues, but also about European issues. But I think when it comes to themes such as, you know, migration that we talked about, also, you know, the impact of climate change and green policies on the day-to-day -day lives of citizens, what it means for their bank accounts and for their energy bills, their taxes, all those kinds of things. Obviously, those are concerns that a lot of voters have. So that could become teams in this European election campaign at this point, it's just too early to predict, I think. Yeah, I mean, in France, it's, it's definite that it's sort of national politics is still dominating and that, you know, the far right is trying to turn it into a kind of, you know, election against or for Macron as there's talk of sort of a midterm election here. And, you know, the sort of more centrist pro-European camps is trying to get the European issues on the table, but I don't think that's working very well. It's also the case that in France, we've got the Olympic Games coming up right afterwards. And, the, you know, there's already signs in the media that there will be less focus on the election because of the, the massive build-up to the Olympic Games in Paris. Cool. And we're going to circle back to the Olympics in a minute. But Hans, uh, before we do that, what's your sense of how the budget crisis, a topic that we think is very sexy here at EU Confidential, what's <laughs> your sense of how that is playing into, into these election dynamics? It's definitely playing a lot into it because the budget crisis is still going on. So roughly two months ago, we had um, a ruling by the German Constitutional Court, which ruled that a large 
part of their counting practices that the German government was using to create some sort of shadow budgets was illegal. And that created, of course, a huge financial problem for the German government because they had to scramble to set up a new budget for 2023, but then also for this year. And um, actually, the discussions on the budget for this year are still going on. We have a draft deal now, but that is hugely controversial because some benefits for farmers are being taken away. And uh, the farmers, they are now causing a huge fuss. There's actually a new demonstration coming up in Berlin. And this is adding additional pressure onto the government. This whole deal needs, still needs to be debated in parliament. And it is all a sort of continuous crisis for the government. And we are seeing this already in the polls. Generally, you see that the governing parties, the Social Democrats of Olaf Scholz, the Greens and the Liberal uh, Free Democrats are not doing too well. All this talk of German party politics, of course, makes me think of the current president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who we expect to be the Spitzenkandidat for the European People's Party, but she still hasn't made a decision. Clea, last time we had you on as a guest, you were saying that, you know, this sense in Brussels that she was kind of a slam dunk, that that's not really the view from France. Are there still, you know, heavy doubts about her potential for a second term uh, in Paris? It's funny because the latest conversations I've had have pointed in the other way that basically von der Leyen will eventually get the French backing. However, I think there are strong doubts in terms of the results of the elections. If the results of the elections, the European elections in June, are really bad, there will have to be some changes. There will have to be some sacrifices. And so, the, you know, we can't say right now that von der Leyen is safe because as we've all gone round the table saying the far right is rising, you know, things will be difficult. But I think in Paris, there is, you know, my latest conversations, the, the idea that von der Leyen is kind of aligned with Macron, lots of things that he's worked with her on, you know, a range of topics, you know, industry, China, et cetera, et cetera. And they wouldn't be too unhappy to carry on with her. Naturally, they want to keep up the pressure. And Barbara, what are you hearing around town from from diplomats and other people that you're talking to about potential people for top jobs, not just at the commission, but for the council, for other key um, commissioner posts? Yeah, I think what's interesting in this town is that people talk about these top jobs as if there were no European elections, right? As if that's just a formality, whereas in national politics, obviously, you first have the elections and then you talk about the top jobs. I think everyone is running with the assumption that von der Leyen will announce that she wants to do a second term and that she will get that second term, depending on the election results. Whereas for the European Council, you know, things are a little bit more uncertain at this point. The name of former Portuguese Prime Minister Antonia Costa was kind of in pole position. If the Socialists would want to opt for the European Council this time around, obviously given the corruption accusations around him, that is more unlikely now unless things get resolved around the summer. And so the names that are floating around at this point, they all come to the table, but then immediately there's a but. So it's much less obvious. And that would have implication as well for the new EU foreign policy chief, currently Josef Borrell, which would potentially then come from the Liberal Renew Party. So a lot of names, but a lot of uncertainty at this point, to be honest. Hans, what are you hearing? Well, 
Obviously, it makes sense for von der Leyen to only announce, as Barbara just mentioned, her candidacy at a later stage. So the date that we know is uh, the 6th and the 7th of March in Bucharest, where we will have um, the EPP, so the European People's Party Summit, where they want to nominate their Spitzenkandidat. And for von der Leyen, it, it just makes sense to wait as much as possible until that date. She will she will announce that she's running if she really intends. But also what I'm hearing is that she definitely wants because for her to really drag this out allows her to stay above the whole talk of the election, be a president not affected by political campaigning. And this is also explaining why, for example, she's not running for the European Parliament. Already last year, there was some fuss about von der Leyen not running on an uh, election list um, as an MEP in a home state uh, of Lower Saxony in Germany. But that would have required her to basically announce that already last fall. And as I just explained, she had no interest uh, in doing this. So uh, she will probably run as a Spitzenkandidat. She will not run as an MEP for the European Parliament. Yeah, and I mean, another thing about this sort of seeing her as, as a fait accompli is that we're not hearing anything about a potential lead candidate from any of the other major European political parties. There's been a little bit of name dropping in Paris. There's been articles leaks in La Repubblica in Italy that Macron might be considering Mario Draghi as a possible candidate. And, you know, there's sort of other weird names that come out. But as one person I spoke to uh, actually quite funnily mentioned, it might all be just a tactic to get the Germans to agree on von der Leyen, because if you start bringing out these funny names, then they'll all go, oh, no, let's stick with von der Leyen. So, yeah, there's some talk in Paris, but nothing serious, really. Just to add there in Germany, even though we have a social democratic chancellor running Germany, all that I'm hearing is that Olaf Scholz is very much backing von der Leyen. Yeah. So with the liberals and the socialists, etc., there's a lot of name dropping. Again, with every time a name falls, it's like, but there are no obvious candidates to go against von der Leyen in this race. Also, because she's just a very, you know, tough incumbent president to beat, given you know the crises that she has handled. So it will be a very tough race. And at this point, the parties are, are waiting pretty long to actually kick off this race with their candidates. For those of us who have resolved to be more mindful and live more in the present in 2024, we're not doing a good job because we're projecting way into the future. Let's come back to today. Barbara, we are in the first few days of the Belgian presidency. You are also an experienced reporter on Belgian national politics. You just interviewed the Belgian prime minister. You know, what realistically in this last council presidency of a mandate can they really hope to accomplish? They can confirm their status or reputation as a compromise makers, right? So they have a limited amount of time to close a lot of files that are still either in negotiations between the Council of the EU and the European Parliament um, or that have to be wrapped up. So that is definitely their priority. They want to do a good job at that. And then the second thing, and that is something that the co also really mentioned in our conversation, is to weigh on the next European Commission, right? Because ahead of the European election, you always have 
have the debate among EU leaders on the so-called strategic agenda. So what will be the priorities for the next European Commission? And I think this time around, there's even more attention to that debate because of the discussions on a future enlargement of the European Union to Ukraine and potential other countries, for example, in the Western Balkan. If Ukraine or other countries would join the EU, that would obviously have massive implications on the decision-making process, the budget, etc. So the idea of how can we prepare for that in terms of internal reform, but also what are our political priorities um, when it comes to the EU's competitiveness, the EU's role in the world, those are all questions that De Coe and his government really want to to weigh on on those discussions. Okay, so still not really living in the present, but um, we can't really criticize uh, ambitious politicians for trying to prepare for the future. So as promised, Cleo, we're going we're gonna to end with you. You brought up the Olympic Games in Paris coming up in July and August. President Macron, during his New Year's speech, even said that the Olympics and the reopening of the Notre Dame Cathedral after the fire in 2019, they will bring France a 2024 full of pride and hope. 2024 will also be an year de fierté française, sportive, puisque les Jeux olympiques et paralympiques seront chez nous, en France. Nous serons fiers de nos athlètes. So, you know, is everybody else kind of feeling this pride and hope ahead of the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, there was some backlash against the sort of tone of that New Year's address, particularly in the conservative media, in that, you know, Emmanuel Macron, you know, talking about the Olympic Games, talking about Notre Dame, sort of, you know, spending a lot of his New Year's address on all these sort of show and glitter moments is actually hiding the fact that he's a bit of a lame duck president. So while, you know, we we can all look forward to sports and, you know, revisiting later in the year the Notre Dame Cathedral, what is Emmanuel Macron going to be able to do in this next year, given that he has no longer got a working majority in the National Assembly, which makes it very difficult for him to pass any legislation. And so the past year, in great pain and with a lot of protest, he managed to get through a pensions reform. He managed to get through an immigration reform. But a lot of people are saying, you know, it was a lot of sweat and blood and, and effort or not much. Um, you know, in terms of the pensions, it was the changes aren't so significant. You know, looking ahead to the Olympic Games, I don't think yet that Paris is in a kind of festive mood. I think the fact that it's kind of growing cold does affect that. But there's also a lot of kind of concern that Paris will be ready on time. And I know this happens at every Olympic Games. It's like, oh, my God, it's going to be a disaster. But Paris is quite a small town, you know, quite densely populated. And there's been a, a fair bit of bickering between politicians in recent months. You know, the mayor of Paris, Hidalgo, and the transport ministers sort of swiping at each other. One saying Paris isn't going to be ready. The other one saying you're betraying the, you know, the, the common good. So, you know, there's lots of questions around, you know, what's it going to look like when we have these thousands and thousands of people descending on the French capital? Well, and not just people, but there were those reports uh, last year of bedbug infestations. That might have been Russian propaganda or misinformation. We don't know, but um, that's also another known unknown that we can throw into the mix. So on that point, I will let you guys all get back to not procrastinating <laughs> and um, looking forward to covering the elections this year with all of you. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. After the break, we'll be back to talk Ukraine, NATO, and the Middle East with Jan Chinsky, zooming in from Warsaw. 
stay with us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, Listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth, and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. Jan, Happy New Year. You're dialing into us from Warsaw. We've been lamenting about the winter weather. Do you have any northern sun up there by any chance? Nope. Poland, like most of northern Europe, is an entirely gray, rainy and foul place for many months to come. Okay, well, we're going to maybe move on to another downer and foul topic, which is Ukraine, where the war is about to enter its third calendar year. President Zelensky said, we do not know with certainty what the new year will bring us, but whatever it brings, we will be stronger. So Jan, you know, there really wasn't much of a Christmas break with the Ukraine war. Can you kind of walk us through a few of the things that happened maybe for some people who were taking a needed respite from the news? Yeah, Russia actually uh, launched several waves of massive uh, drone and missile attacks uh, against Ukraine, the largest since the war began. And the fighting on the front line is very intense. There are huge battles going on the, on the eastern part of the front where the Russians are suffering massive casualties as they try to inch forward against Ukrainian defense. So a very, very tough December uh, for Ukraine and uh, it's continuing on into the new year. And the political prospects are challenging as well. We discussed it a bit when you joined us on our year-end episode a few weeks ago. But um, looking forward to the EU elections, do you have a sense of in which EU countries these potential war fatigue issues might be a factor? And kind of what are the prospects for Ukraine after these votes? There's a general sense that Europe is really uh, picking up the ball But there's a growing worry in Europe about the direction that the U.S. is traveling in, the total block in the U.S. Congress on moving on Ukraine military aid, and a worry that the domestic political dynamic in the states that may sideline the United States. This is an existential issue for Europe as well, and Europe has to step up and arm the Ukrainians, even if the Americans aren't there. And that's, that's sort of happening. And as to your question on what happens with the European election, there is likely to be an increase in more nationalist parties in the in the European election. But I think that 
the overall direction of the European Parliament is still going to be the rather traditional sort of cobbling together of various centrist parties. And many of these decisions are made not in Brussels, but in uh, national capitals. There's a couple of countries that do not support Ukraine, led by Hungary. Slovakia is kind of edging into that direction, although it's still selling a lot of weapons to Ukraine. But everybody else is pretty much on board. And I just don't see, even with the European election, any kind of a revolution in Europe's approach to Ukraine that they're going to sort of throw up their hands and say, well, we're just not going to help you anymore. Well, Jan, you brought up several major, major points. I've been trying to keep some mental notes on them. The first one that I want to touch on staying within Europe is the issue with Hungary. We're looking at the next uh, European Council summit at the beginning of February. Are there any new strategies for dealing with Orban and getting him to agree to free up these 50 billion euros? The Hungarians have really dug in their heels. And the one strategy is uh, doing an end run around the Hungarians and getting all the EU countries except for Hungary to agree on a bilateral basis to supply the funds to Ukraine. Hungary is going to be a a big problem in the second half of this year when they take on the council presidency. The EU has taken on a growing role in arming Ukraine and in supplying finance to Ukraine to keep the country afloat. A big part of that depends on the initiative shown by the country running the the presidency. The Belgians, who rather have the presidency for the first half of this year, are really going to have to try to lock down as much as possible for Ukraine before things stall in the second half of the year. Mm. And the other big point that you brought up is um, the situation in my in my home country, the U.S., um, the potential return of Donald Trump. He once famously boasted that he would end the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. I would have a peace deal negotiated within 24 hours. That deal could be done. That deal is waiting to be done, but there's nobody to do it. How's Kiev thinking at this point about the potential return of Trump? Kiev, like other European countries, is very worried about a Trump return. And it just there's just been this fascinating shift in the Republican Party, which used to be you know, under Ronald Reagan and, and going back decades, was the party of national defense, of uh, military security, of American power, and how it's turned into this nativist party where certain elements of the Republican Party seem to be in thrall to the uh, Kremlin's propaganda machine and are taking an approach that's wildly different from what the party would have pushed in the past. So that is a, that is a real problem for Kiev. They need American military help. They need that support. We still have the Biden presidency through the rest of this year. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, getting these financial commitments through Congress is very, very difficult. The Ukrainians are legitimately worried that the Americans will fall by the wayside and that they'll have to rely largely on the Europeans. Europe is a very, very wealthy continent. Its economy is massively larger than that of Russia, and it's an existential threat. If Russia defeats Ukraine, Russia is right on the borders of the EU. And so it is entirely within the capacities of the EU to finance and arm Ukraine to handle Russia, even if the Americans fall away. It can be done. It's a question of political will. Is it just a question of political will? Because we also hear these things about just, you know, actually manufacturing weapons quickly enough. Would there be enough material for Europe to arm Ukraine to the extent necessary if the U.S. disappears? They do have things which they're not giving the Ukrainians yet, which is the the big one is the Taurus missile that the Germans and the Swedes have produced, which 
would, in conjunction with the cruise missiles given by France and the UK, would allow Ukraine to dominate all of the Russian-occupied regions and potentially drop the Kerch Bridge linking Crimea with Russia. Europe does have access to F-16s, which are not yet being given to Ukraine. But you do point to a problem, which is across the West, is that Western countries in the wake of the end of the Cold War really geared down their production of for things like artillery ammunition and tank production and that sort of thing. And so that applies both to the U.S. and to the EU. We're seeing these investments starting to happen. There's announcements coming from country after country. The last week was the Czech Republic. Poland is ramping up its artillery production. Germany is trying to do the same. It takes a long time for these investments to gear up. But I think that the whole Western world is shifting to a policy of, of much higher defense spending and higher defense production for the foreseeable future. And just looking in the very near term future, we're expecting a Ukraine-NATO meeting next week. Do you have a sense of what's on the agenda? The Ukrainians are in this bizarre position. The Russians are launching these waves of attacks, often from their own airspace. And the Ukrainians have been admonished by their allies to limit attacks on Russian soil to their own weapons, not to use the weapons that the West has supplied. So the Ukrainians really are fighting with one arm tied behind their backs. They can see Russian heavy bombers taking off and flying over the Caspian Sea and launching the missiles, which in a few minutes will hit their cities, yet they can't do anything about it. They can't use Western systems to knock these planes out to hit the airfield in Russia in a way that stops Russia from being able to do this. Obviously, the the reason for that is that the West is still worried about if there are any red lines for Russia that would lead to a nuclear conflict. And so that's why there's always this reluctance. Each step up the ladder has had a lot of hesitation, a lot of worry, because there's this uncertainty. Is this the one that breaks the, the straw that breaks the camel's back and gets the Russians to turn to nuclear weapons? None of this has happened yet. And the Ukrainians insist that the Russians don't actually have a red line and that you can fully arm them. But Washington and Berlin are worried. And that's why we're not seeing Taurus missiles or Attackums missiles from the US going to Ukraine, because that's what they're worried about. That's really interesting. I'm curious to see if they're able to convince them to be a little more open with the with the use of weapons there. Let's switch from one conflict zone to another. Let's turn to the Middle East. The war in Gaza is still raging. We've seen fighting with Iranian-backed Hezbollah on the Israeli-Lebanese border intensify in recent days. We just saw a warning even from Western powers directed at the Houthis earlier this week. Jan, can you walk us through some of those developments? Yeah, the October attack by Hamas on Israel and then Israel's massive and ongoing response in Gaza is spreading into a the, the kind of regional war that Iran is basically hoping for. And Iran has a lot of allies. Hamas is one of them. Hezbollah is another one in Lebanon. And the Houthi rebels in Yemen are yet another part of this alliance that Iran has built over the years. And a lot of these conflicts are now starting to link together in response to what's happening in Gaza. The Houthis are attacking shipping in the Red Sea. Many large shipping companies, Maersk, BP, and others, are avoiding the Red Sea and the Suez Canal and instead sending their ships around Africa, uh, which adds cost and time. And so it's having a broader economic impact. The U.S. is leading a international response in the Red Sea to try to stop the attacks on, on commercial shipping. And there's this 
worry that these responses will generate a larger regional conflict that Israel will start to get involved in Lebanon. I mean, there was a there was a targeted assassination a couple of days ago against a Hamas official in, in Lebanon, and uh, that these conflicts will will all sort of explode and, and engulf the region. The EU is a secondary player in all of this. The US is the leader, but some European countries are sending ships to the Red Sea. The EU is expressing increasing concern about uh, the way that Israel is conducting the uh, the campaign in Gaza and the worry that the uh, some Israeli politicians are calling for ethnic cleansing of Gaza. The EU is trying to influence the direction of what's happening, but uh, you know, as I said, it's very much a secondary player to the U.S. in this theater. Okay, thanks for that, Jan. I mean, it is just striking that this huge conflict is happening right on essentially the border of Europe could have major implications for migration. And yet there's really, really not much that the EU can do. But on that note, let's move on. We were talking a bit about one Donald T before. Let's move on to a different one a bit closer to where you are. Donald Tusk has just become prime minister again in Poland. He wants to put his country back at the center of European politics. In our previous conversation with our panel, we were talking about the top jobs Um, He's already been president of the European Council. He knows all of his counterparts, all of the ins and outs of the EU system. Do you think we're going to see him setting the agenda again at EU summits in 2024? Um, I think that Poland will definitely wants to play a more core role in EU decisions. But I think that Tusk and his new government are going to be overwhelmed with the job facing them to return Poland to sort of a functioning democratic system, which had been undermined by eight years of the law and justice government. The courts are in chaos. The government is retaking control of the public media to howls of outrage from law and justice. There's a coming purge of uh, the management of state-owned corporations. So uh, all of this stuff is going to be hugely absorbing of Tusk's attention. There's also Poland uh, has never been a very easy partner in the EU. They have their own national agenda. Even a Tusk government, which is obviously much more pro-EU than his predecessors, they're not going to be cuddly and easy to get along with. It's a big country. It's got its own national interests, and it will be pushing those pretty forcefully as well. Oh, well, we we like cuddly polls around here. And um, Jan, thank you for helping us keep a finger on the pulse of Warsaw. This was a very wide-ranging conversation. Looking forward to speaking more throughout the year. Happy to be back. And that's all we have for you today. We hoped we helped you brace for the potentially chaotic year ahead and that you stick around for all the future episodes all year long. Please follow us on your favorite app and rate us. You can also drop us an email with your suggested New Year's resolutions to podcast at politico.eu. Thank you to Deanna Sturris, our senior audio producer, and Christina Gonzalez, Politico's executive producer for audio. I promise, guys, really, I'm going to actually be on time for tapings this year. See you next week and have a happy new year. 